0: Well, I don't have to really tell you this, but the Bible is a big book. And because the Bible is a big book and because it covers a a huge chunk of time in history and because it's written during times that are far removed from our times, many people today have trouble reading it and understanding it. And because of those factors, it might be easy to get intimidated buy it, or to just plain give up on it. Even for Christians, instead of reading it as one story from beginning to end, which it is, it has the danger of becoming sort of a a reference book, where sometimes we just use it to look up a, a particular subject that might be relevant at the time, whatever time of life or circumstances of life we're in. And so if we use it that way, it it becomes just sort of a, a sanctified search engine. The other reason people have trouble reading the Bible is because they say it's full of complexities. And that's sort of related to the first issue, but it's more than just the cultural gap and the time gap. They say it doesn't speak directly to the issues of our day. And so it's not so much... That the Bible is complex—it's the fact that the world is complex. We want to live by the Bible, but we say it can't keep up with the with the myriads of uh, issues in our world. But we who believe in the Bible's authority say that it is, in fact, sufficient to give instructions in all matters pertaining to life and godliness. We would freely admit that it doesn't speak to every single detail of every issue, but it does provide general overarching big picture principles that we can apply to every single issue. Well, one of the complex issues of our day is the topic of marriage and all the other issues that spawn off of that one larger topic, whether it's uh, common law marriage or whether it's no-fault divorce or whether it's same-sex marriage, the amount of Uh, legislation in our day regarding the institution of marriage is proof of that. What seems like it should be a pretty simple concept, one man and one woman entering into one lifelong covenant, has somehow become complex and complicated and confusing and in many ways chaotic. As I said last week, now there are attempts, a successful attempts, I might add, especially down south, to redefine the whole thing and then to legislate that redefinition. And as Christians, we know that this is really an attack from the evil one on God's design for the family. It's an act of sin and rebellion by people who, by their, as Romans 1 says, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth even though it's couched as sort of the new overarching virtue of our time, which is, na- which is tolerance or acceptance. And so even though the issues are different, the complexity of marriage is nothing new. It was a complex issue in the Roman Empire way back in the first century, and it, has, um, and it was made even more complex in the city of Corinth When some of the citizens of the Roman Empire became Christians. Christianity does that, doesn't it? It it overturns our previously held value system. Or at least it should. It should jolt the way we live our lives. It should jolt our priorities. It should jolt our affections. And it should... Uh, jolt how we look at the social issues of our day especially how those social norms affect us now that we're believers and how they affect our sense of morality it should make us reorient our lives and it should make us reorient the way we think well that's what happened there in corinth and like us they were trying to figure out how to now live And when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, we find out that Paul is going to answer some of their questions on the topic of marriage. From verse 1, which we looked at last week, it seems like the Christians there in Corinth had written Paul a letter where they had asked him specifically about marriage and about how they should think about marriage now that they are Christians. And we looked at some of those last Sunday. But in verse 8 and following, Paul answers a few more of the uh, the scenarios that they were asking about. And so he gives instructions for certain groups of people in certain kinds of situations that have to do with marriage. And you'll notice those different situations as I read. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, if you don't, haven't got them open yet to 1 Corinthians 7, I encourage you to do that now. And I'm going to be reading just verses 8 to 16 today. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, let me say that again with emphasis, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean. But now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? And so here we have Paul answering questions to people, um, to a church who are saying, what do we do about these kind of relationships now that I'm a Christian? Some of them were single, some were married, some were widows, some were divorced. In some marriages, one spouse became a Christian, but the other spouse didn't. And then add to all those those situations the fact that they lived in a culture where immorality and fornication and prostitution were just part of life. And now you have these new Christians wondering, what do I do about this now? What do I do about the situation in which I find myself? What do we do about these things in the church? How can we be pure on this issue when we came out of such an impure lifestyle and and value system? How should I think of marriage now that I'm a believer? And how does the church deal with these kind of things? Well, we learned from verses 1 to 7 last week that some new Christians went way to the other extreme and said, that's it, no relations at all. And then Paul came and said, it's not going to work. And don't do it. Unless you have a special gift. So now they go on to ask questions about some other scenarios. And so the easiest way to walk through this today is just go through those different kinds of situations and categories as Paul outlines them here. So we're not going to follow an outline that I made up. We're going to follow Paul's outline here today. The first category there is the unmarried and the widows in verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say. Now let's just stop there for a minute and just figure out who he's talking to here. So bear with me and see if you can follow this. And and I just want to say that this is an interpretation I read. There's all sorts of in, in, uh, interpretation on, these, on the meaning of those words. But this is the one I read for, from John MacArthur, and it just makes the most sense to me. Now, we all know what a widow is. That one's easy. A widow is someone whose spouse has passed away, who has died. And so they are now, in effect, single. But what about that other category, the unmarried? Well, this is obviously someone who's also single. But we want to ask here, what is it that makes them single? We know it's not a widow. He's writing to unmarried and widows. Well, then you say, it must be someone who's never been married. And if you just read this verse, that would probably be a good assumption. Until you see this word again later in chapter 7. And by the way, this word here, unmarried, in the Greek is only used... In this chapter, in the whole Bible, it's never used again. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible, just here. And it's used four times. And so just glance over at verse 32. It's used there, but, but when you look at that word, how it's used there, we really can't say anything about what it means. It's just used generally. The unmarried man wants to please the Lord. All that means is someone who is unmarried can be singularly focused on pleasing God. But then look two verses later in verse 34. There it says the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. Or the English Standard Version says a betrothed woman. And so again we have two separate categories of single. But now we have the virgin. This is someone who's never been married. And so whatever unmarried means it can't be a widow from back in the first verse that we read, and now it can't be someone who's never been married. So we have eliminated two now. So the fourth time it's used, besides verse 8 and verse 32 and verse 34, is in verse 11. One of the verses in the passage that I just read. Here it uses it in reference to a woman who has left her husband. It says she should remain unmarried. There's the word. This is someone who's divorced just by process of elimination. Someone who was once married but is now unmarried by divorce. I hope you followed along as we went through that. You put all that together and you come back to verse 8. And I believe that the unmarried and the widows is talking about now single, once married people who were either divorced or widowed. The unmarried and the widows. I said last week that divorce was very common in that culture, just like ours today. So I think that fits. So what does Paul say to this group? He starts off by saying, it is good for them to remain as I. He says it's okay, it's good for them to stay single. He said that back in verse 7, and he's going to say it again later in the chapter a few times. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to talk about singleness as well. It's a good thing to be single, he says. It gives them certain advantages in serving God. It allows them to focus on pleasing God, to have one priority all on its own instead of one among many. They can focus on pleasing God in a way that married people can't. It's good, but it's not the only option. In fact, it's probably not the majority standard option. Verse 9 Says, if they don't have self control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so here we get to the fact that the standard, uh, if you want to put it as a gift, the standard gift for most people regarding the use of the body is not self control. And if you don't have the gift of self control in this area, then Paul says, get married. The God ordained. Uh, outlet for lack of self-control, if you want to put it that way in this area, is marriage. Everyone understand that? I don't have to say any more, right? <laughs> Good. For, he continues, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He says those that are saved after they were divorced and for those whose husband or wife had died before they were saved and... If you don't have the gift of celibacy, better to marry. And listen to this. God, I think we can imply from these verses, God can even grant the gift of celibacy after someone has been divorced or widowed. There's actually a good reason to believe that Paul was a widower and now had that gift. And he can do it for those who divorced before they became Christians too. But it's not generally true of most people. So, and um, this might seem like I'm not as narrow on this issue as some may prefer, but I believe that Paul is teaching here that someone who has been divorced before they became a Christian, someone who has been divorced before they became a Christian, who does not have the gift of celibacy, is permitted to remarry. I think that's not only consistent with what Paul says here, but it would also seem to be consistent with the nature and the heart of God. When someone becomes a Christian, they are a new creation. 2 Corinthians five, seventeen: The old is gone, the new has come. And the same goes for widows. It's why Paul later tells Timothy to instruct the young widows to get married. It's in 1 Timothy 5, verses 11 to 15. So it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The stipulation, though, for saying that, and this is important, is that if they do get remarried, it has to be to a believer. For those in the church, if they're going to get remarried, it must be to a believer. When it talks about widows at the end of chapter 7, in verse 39, it says that she is free to be remarried, but only in the Lord. And I think that can be extended to anyone that gets remarried. As a believer, they must be married in the Lord. Well, let's go to the next group. Verses 10 and 11, to the married. Paul writes, To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice first that this is different than the first category, even in the force of Paul's instruction. Paul says, I give this instruction. And that's actually not strong enough of a translation. This is actually a, a declaration, a charge, a command. I, I command that the wife should not leave her husband. In the first one he says, it's good if you remain single, it's good if you get married. But here he says, this is a command. I command that the wife should not leave her husband. Why is He's so strong here because it's coming from the Lord. Not I, but the Lord. And so in this particular instruction to the married, Paul is picking up on what Jesus had already said about marriage and he's applying it to this situation here in Corinth. So just remember what he's saying here is not a suggestion. It's a command. He's issuing orders from Jesus himself. And that command there is to stay married the wife should not leave her husband. And just skip the brackets in verse 11 for a second. It says, and then the husband should not divorce his wife. The wife should not leave her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Man and woman ought not to try and tear apart what God has put together. Marriage is a God thing, not a man thing. Even when it's between Non-Christians, it's still a God thing. Why? Because marriage was something that God designed in the garden before sin. Marriage transcends someone's status as a believer or a non-believer. I'm going to say that again a few times. but Get it now. Marriage transcends someone's status as a believer or a non-believer. It was not good for the man to be alone, so God created woman. And he joined them together and they became one flesh. And that one flesh concept is the foundation that lies underneath everything that Paul is teaching here. From the end of chapter 6 on the God-designed purpose for the body, right through to his teaching on marriage. And Jesus reiterated and enforced God's design. And so in Jewish tradition, which Jesus was dealing with in his ministry, the marriage covenant had pretty much become meaningless. And the reasons for leaving a marriage had become very broad says they're for any reason at all and so jesus comes and upholds god's standards and actually radically narrows the reasons for leaving a marriage and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in depth next time and now paul comes and upholds the standard of god and the standard of god's son Well, the background to this section in Corinth is that these recently converted Christians who were married before were now wondering what to do. It might be that the, and we're just speculating here, just by the the answers that Paul is giving, but but it might have been that the women especially, and I say that just because they're mentioned first, were wondering what to do since they were married to husbands who were involved in an immoral lifestyle before they became Christians. And so they may have asked Paul if they were required to stay married to these men. In fact, it seems like some already went ahead and left their husbands. Under Jewish law, women wouldn't have been able to do that. But in Roman law, either men or women could take the initiative. And so Paul's answer in a word is, no, don't leave. And it's based on the teaching of Jesus, not I, but the Lord whose teaching in turn is based on the original intent of uh, the intent and design of God himself. To God and to Jesus and to Paul, marriage is a permanent covenant because it's ultimately God who brings people together. Even though all kinds of things might have happened prior to marriage, now that both spouses are believers, they ought to stay together. So I'll say it again, the marriage covenant that they made to each other, even if it happened when they didn't acknowledge God, transcends their non-Christian status. Why? Because marriage is God's institution. Now, that gets nuanced a little bit later in a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian, and we're going to see that starting in verse 12. But for now, in a marriage of two people who have become believers, both have become believers, Paul says stay together, no matter what happened before. That teaching would have been totally countercultural in that day. It would have been a distinguishing sign for the Christian community. Divorce was the rule rather than the exception. Uh, someone, I read this week, discovered a funeral inscription from a faithful husband or wife that was uh, dated a few years before this letter. It said this It said, quote, Uncommon are marriages which last so long, brought to an end by death, not broken apart by divorce. For it was our ha- happy lot that it should be prolonged to the 41st year without estrangement, quote. That this couple was married for 41 years was uncommon in that day and age. And so Paul is commanding Christians in the church to stay married and to stand against the world. Church must always stand against the world, and the permanence of marriage is one way to do that. Especially in a culture when marriage is under attack. And Paul actually gives more uh, oomph to that when he tells wives that have already divorced to then either stay unmarried or, if they are going to get remarried, it has to be with their former husband. Basically saying, if you already disobeyed me once, don't do it again. There are only two options now. Stay single or be reconciled to your husband. Do you see that there? Why does Paul teach this? Because in God's eyes, that joining together cannot be dissolved by man. In the eyes of God and in the eyes of even the church, they are still married. Well, Paul introduces another category in verse 12 and he just calls them there the rest. To the rest, I say. But it's clear that he's now answering a question about believers being married to unbelievers. These are mixed marriages. A Christian husband married to a non-Christian wife, or a Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband. Now we have situations where just one spouse became a Christian. In the last situation, both had become believers. Now just one. And they're thinking, what do we do now? We know we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. We don't want uh, good and evil to coexist or light and darkness to coexist in the same home. And how about the kids? Are they going to get corrupted? Well, people thought about that and, and they might have been tempted to think, probably better to get rid of him. Probably better to get rid of her. We, we both have different values now. Why don't, why don't we just dissolve this marriage and start over again? Makes sense, doesn't it? It sounds good. I, I'm just going to find me a Christian spouse and, and then we can raise Christian kids together and we'll be good to go. So what does Paul say about that? Verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who, has an, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. Again, the answer is no. Divorce is not an option. Here Paul says that this advice comes from him, not the Lord. So now it's the opposite. This for it was I, the Lord, not I, and now it's from him and not the Lord. And all that means is that Jesus did not deal with this particular issue when he was talking about marriage and divorce. Jesus dealt, as I said before, with mostly a Jewish audience working with Jewish traditions. Paul now is dealing with a mostly Gentile audience functioning under uh, the Roman system. But Paul is not, get this, contradicting Jesus' teaching. He's actually just extending it to the particular situation that they're now asking about. And so it's no less inspired or no less authoritative than what Jesus said. It carries apostolic authority. And so he says, if that unbeliever wants to be married to the believer, the believer ought to stay married. Now why would Paul say that? We all know that believers should marry believers. I just said that a while ago about widows. They need to be married only in the Lord. And that's true. If a Christian is looking to get married, they should only get, look to get married to another Christian. That's the consistent teaching of the Bible. But if they were both married... Before they became Christians, and now only one has received Christ, they should stay married. Again, marriage transcends spiritual status in that case. But you say, he's going to have a bad influence on me, or she's going to corrupt my kids. But look at verse 14. It actually says the exact opposite. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. And the same goes for children. There's just something about living in the same home with a Christian that brings a good and godly influence into that home. And because of God's view of marriage and because of the sanctifying effect that holiness has on unholiness, Paul says, stay right there. God's grace toward a Christian will have a spillover effect. It'll be an avenue of blessing. In those kinds of situations, and in those kinds of situations only, God will use a believer's holiness to have a bigger influence than an unbeliever's unholiness. In those kinds of situations where two people become Christians after they were or sorry, when one person becomes a Christian, the other person doesn't after, after they became a... Sorry, let me say that again. If, they, if one person in that marriage becomes a Christian and the other person doesn't, God will use that believer's holiness to have a bigger influence than an unbeliever's unholiness. He will send a sphere of blessing into that home, into a family in which the Christian lives. If you're in a situation like that, if you became a Christian after you were married, this is an encouraging promise for you. And especially because there might be times when you might get discouraged, not thinking that you're getting anywhere. But based on this passage, your presence in that home brings an added blessing to your spouse and to your children that would not otherwise be there. Keep praying. Keep living a a righteous life in obedience to God. Because you are a Christian, your spouse and your children have uh, an access to the gospel that they would not otherwise have. Because you are a Christian, your spouse and your children have access to godly values that they would not otherwise have. Because you are a Christian, your spouse and your children have access to a church that they would not otherwise have. So take heart. Be encouraged. Stay right there. Keep living the gospel before your family and you're going to have a sanctifying, shaping influence in your home as God lives in you through His Spirit. Now there is a B-U-T there, a contrast, a but. In cases where a Christian lives with a non-Christian and the non-Christian spouse does not consent to live with a believing spouse, It says the believer is not under bondage in such cases. If the non-believer does not want to be in a marriage, this says let him leave or let her leave. Don't scratch and claw to make them stay. If they want out, and, and remember that's the stipulation here, if they want out, don't do everything in your power not to let that spouse out. Don't say, I'm not going to let him get out of it because, well, he needs to get saved. And I'm the one that's going to get him there. Well, verse 16 addresses that. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, oh husband, whether you'll save your wife? So this applies to an unbelieving spouse who does not consent to live with a believing spouse. It says the believer is free to let the unbeliever leave. And by implication... Is also free to remarry, and the underlying principle behind that is God has called you to peace. Well, I'm just going to leave that right there as a teaser for you to come back in a couple of weeks. Next week we have uh, we have Harv Martin's here from Gospel to Asia, but in two weeks I'm going to talk about the Bible's view view of divorce and remarriage, and we'll bring Jesus's view into it. We'll go all the way back to Moses, and then we'll talk to, about this instance here as well in Paul. And so we're going to talk more about the leaving, the not bound part then. But I just want to end today by showing you how all this is rooted in gospel truths. Marriage is intricately connected to the relationship between God and us and between Christ and the church. And those relationships have a sense of permanence about them. That's why Paul always leans toward the permanent aspect of marriage, following right in the footsteps of Jesus who followed right in the footsteps of God himself. Concerning our relationship with God, Jesus says things like this. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Or, I will give eternal life to my sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's talking about salvation, the relationship between God and us, relationship between Christ and his church. And in marriage, just keep those thoughts in mind, in marriage he says things like, what God has put together, let man not separate. Do you see how that language is connected? Connected. Paul's teaching on marriage is intricately and intimately connected to the gospel of salvation. And that's why Paul can also say with regard to marriage that God has called us to peace. Just as Jesus came to make peace between you and God, so we, as God's people, are called to peace. And we'll just leave it right there. Let's pray.